Standing Ready, the podcast that gives you an inside look at the untold history of the VA's medical innovations with your hosts, Katie DeLaCensory and Sean Spittler. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Sean Spittler. With me is my co-host for the VHA, Katie DeLaCensory. Hello, everyone. Welcome. And today we're talking about something that you wouldn't normally think about when you think of medical history, which is academic affiliations. Yep. And so when I heard this term, I didn't even know what that meant. It's through starting of this podcast that I even know what it is, but it's actually pretty interesting. It goes pretty deep into kind of what happens and, and we take it for granted today. So uh, Katie, can you give me a primer on what is academic affiliation? Yeah, absolutely. And Sean, I'm kind of in the same boat with you. I just sort of thought VA hospitals had always just sort of been associated with with a medical school just because it seems like such a natural thing. It fits so well. But that's not always the case in, in VHA history. So conditions before weren't quite right. Before the Veterans Administration kind of came to be, there were multiple agencies that kind of had a hand in veterans healthcare and sort of more of a, a limited approach. But World War II changes all of that. So suddenly VA is in a situation where, you know, you have 16 million veterans returning from war and your ranks as an agency are kind of depleted. So you have to mm. build a workforce of doctors. And VA at this point has started to focus on research. The first research lab opened in the 20s. So by the 40s, there's an increased emphasis on research. And not only that, but the location of of hospitals has to change because you're not going to put a hospital anymore where some congressman wanted it in his backyard that was, you know, not near anybody and not near all these schools. Since then, and due to the work of Omar Bradley and Dr. Paul Hawley and another doctor, Dr. Paul Magnuson, you have all of these changes starting to happen. The legislation creating the Department of Medicine and Surgery in VA, right, is signed on January 3rd, 1946. Days after that, Northwestern becomes the first medical school to announce it's going to partner with VA. Immediately then you have, you start training a whole host of of doctors. You start building hospitals next to these major medical schools, mm-hmm. and you start devoting more time and resources to to research. And you know, here we are, 75 years later after the start of that, it's seen a host of inventions and innovations in right. the medical community that has been because of this. You know, things like the cardiac pacemaker, the first successful liver transplant. Um, the cardiac, the nicotine the, patch, the nicotine patch, exactly. Yeah. All of these things come out of that research element because VA partners with these medical schools, um, and so you. And then, in addition to that, you have nearly seventy percent of doctors today being trained at a VA facility. Wow. Yeah, which is just incredible if you really think about it. So, help me understand what is the hospital getting out of this. And what is the institution getting out of the the academic institution? Because it's symbiotic, right? Like they're both getting something. If you're a VA hospital, you're getting residents into Mm -hmm. VA facilities who can offer some of the newest uh, and best treatment to, to its veterans. And then those medical students leave the VA with the foundational awareness of some of the medical needs of veterans. If they end up back at the VA or if they go out to other practices, they have an ingrained knowledge of the special medical needs that the veteran community is facing. And so they bring that them that with them right. wherever they go. 
And also by partnering, you have research consortiums being built and funded and resources on each side that make partnerships like that make it possible to fund these large research studies right. for things that benefit not only the veteran community, but the world as, on a, as a whole. Because VA is, is a leader in, in prosthetics development and research, as we have heard in, in a previous episode, you know, that means something very specific for the veterans. And that type of research and work isn't really being done on the scale that it is at VA outside of VA. Right. So in a way, this is, I think the term is the result is greater than the sum of its parts. Exactly. Exactly. On their own, you know, one plus one equals two, except when you're putting these two things together, there's this chemical reaction that gives you a lot more bang for your buck. Exactly. And I I think the record sort of speaks for itself when you kind of look back 75 years later and at the time it was a new initiative, but for for us today, 75 years later, looking back, it's amazing how right they got that with with partnering with academic schools because there've been three Nobel prizes that come, come out of this. Do we know what for offhand? Um, no. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like I want to say something like radio um, immunotherapy. Um, I I am not a doctor, but um, yeah, That's there's okay. a lot of a lot of contributions which we will explore <laughs> right. in upcoming seasons. Yeah. <laughs> also, I have to say, talking to uh, Dr. Murray Levin, I feel like now I have at least kind of gone to medical school on my own. He was yeah. His 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 perspective and and just talking with him has. Has giving me much more insight into um, so what I'd like to, to go to medical speaking school. Speaking of, let's let's get into that a little bit. Who do we have as our guests this week? We're speaking with Dr. Murray Levin, who is a professor emeritus at Northwestern University. But he's also he served at the Lakeside Hospital in Chicago, which is the research hospital in the Chicago area. And he he had some really interesting stories. Yes. I really enjoyed listening to, yes. to him. It's especially for me as a historian, it was really when he talked about the first patient that he saw when he was a resident in the 1950s, he, he treated a, a veteran from the Spanish-American War, which is that really, is, yeah. yeah, 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 that's that's 1898. So right. whenever you have somebody who can connect you across different centuries, that's yeah, that that's is what it's all about awesome. for me. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> and <laughs> our second guest is... And we're also speaking with Andrea Birnbaum today, who's the Associated Chief of Staff for Education and the Designated Education Officer at the Jesse Brown VA Medical Center. Do you have any trivia for me today? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do have a little bit of trivia. All right. So we we talked a little bit about how Murray Levin has has treated some Spanish-American War veterans in his day. Do you know who the President of the United States was during that war? No. <laughs> That's not fair. That's not I good know. trivia. <laughs> um, no idea. Uh, yeah. Okay. I'll try to work on my trivia and <laughs> make it a little bit more fun. Um, the answer is William McKinley. For you could have said, you could have given me a list of random names and said, which one of these is a president, hey, he, and I would well, have not I mean, guessed William McKinley. I feel like you should know this because you are from Ohio, and he was from well, Ohio. So that's, that's terrible <laughs> in, reason in, to insert, know. Insert insert the more you know sound. 
Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll I'll work on my trivia and try to maybe do another. Okay. Maybe move right. it away from history. <laughs> G- giving me questions about presidents from random centuries is not going to help. No. <laughs> so it's it's interesting to me the idea of medicine and academics having ever been separated because it's just the way that it is you know they just go together it's peanut butter and jelly it's peanut butter and chocolate those things just seem from my perspective growing up to to go together but that wasn't always the case and in fact the VA was a pioneering force in in academic affiliations so can we get a little bit of a of a background on on how this got started and and how this innovation even came to be yeah absolutely sean it, it you're right it just seems like something that makes so much sense to us today that it's hard to think of a time when when this wasn't the case but it really came about after world war ii when the nation was trying to deal with uh, 16 million incoming new veterans that needed health care the va struck partnerships with the nation's top medical schools to to partner with them for for a number of reasons it provided care for these incoming veterans who needed it it not only did that but it trained an incoming workforce and then it also provided a platform for for research and really this renewed emphasis on research and innovation that was sort of taking shape, just sort of gathering steam in VA up until that point. Really, once you partner with these academic institutions, it just takes off. Out of that partnership, you see a lot of a lot of things expanding, a lot of things progressing very, very quickly. So the legislation that created the Department of Medicine and Surgery was signed on January 3rd, 1946. And it's only days after that Northwestern University announces it's going to partner with the Heinz Hospital in Chicago and really and be the first affiliated hospital. And then it just takes off from that to to cut to today where where 70 percent of doctors receive their training from from VA hospitals. And I believe it's up to twelve hundred now medical schools that are affiliated with VA hospitals. So the progression has just been enormous and you really get a sense of like, yes, this, this is the direction we need to be going in, 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 in looking at that history. And our guest today has seen that history firsthand and we are delighted to welcome Dr. Murray Levin to the program. And Dr. Levin, you were witness to some of the early days of VA's partnership with medical schools. Can you tell us a little bit about your, your background and your medical training, how, how your medical training brought you to the VA? It's a pleasure to reminisce. When I was a third-year medical student, I was assigned to my first clinical rotation at the Boston VA. I learned there how one could deliver care under the very close observation of health staff and attending physicians, and how that care could be delivered without any thought to personal compensation on the part of the of the faculty and of the health staff because no one was in private practice. Everyone was salaried or was on contract to teach. And I learned that this was probably one of the purest ways of practicing medicine in this country, that one could do what one thought was right for the patient. So as a third-year student, I had my first encounter with the VA and loved it. 
So I've learned a tremendous amount about the VA. I've had a lot of experience in the VA. Took, saw every single patient of every intern at least once while I was chief of medicine and uh, examined those patients myself. I must say I made a difference a few times. And, and Good, yeah. Well, uh, the, the old guys sometimes can teach the new guys. And get right. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> but at any rate, it was not only fun, it was a, a wonderful experience because of the mutual benefit that the two institutions get. So how did your training with the VA differentiate from your other training and, and what did work with veterans specifically teach you? The training at the VA uh, and the experience at the VA gave me much more experience, unfortunately, with certain diseases that come from various substance abuses, smoking and alcohol, especially in those days. There is an, a lot of alcoholism and a lot of smoking abuse in the VA population, some of it because of everybody learned to smoke. As cigarettes were handed out in the service, my father-in-law and my uncle and my brother-in-law all told me stories of when they were in, the, in World War II of getting free cigarettes all the time. And then, of course, because of the post-traumatic stress, which was really not recognized for so many years, people called it shell shock in World War I, but, but now we know it's post-traumatic stress, and that causes a lot of alcoholism and a lot of inability to hold uh, employment. Right. I think that as we look back in retrospect, that a heck of a lot of people who were just called, oh, he's a chronic alcoholic, were really suffering from post-traumatic stress. Mm. And the smoking was a habit that was very difficult to shake for an awful lot of people. I cold turkey when I saw my first autopsy as a second year medical student. Oh, wow. This well, that'll, wow. yeah, that doesn't that'll, do it. That'll do it. He <laughs> died of carcinoma of the lung, and he had been a three-pack-a-day smoker. Wow. And I never smoked Oof. a cigarette after that. <laughs> fear, fear instilled itself. Wow. The VA then, of course, gave us an awful lot of experience with chronic lung disease, an awful lot of chronic coronary artery disease from the smoking, and an awful lot of liver disease from the alcoholism. Which is really interesting because some of these advancements that have come out of VA, like the first successful liver transplant and the development of uh, the nicotine smoking patch, mm -hmm. you know, can be tied directly to, to some of these, these effects that veterans had been dealing with. And I believe that first successful liver transplant, was it, was it done in Denver under Tom Starzl? It was done in Denver, correct. Yeah. Tom Starzl. He was a Northwestern mm -hmm. grad. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yes, yes. And he was one of the pioneers in both liver and kidney transplantation in, in this country. Wow. And, and uh, he did a lot of work at the Denver VA, as I recall. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can't imagine being in that moment. This has never been done before, taking an organ out and replacing it. <laughs> that just sounds incredible. I can't imagine that. It is. It, it must have been. I've never done that. I've certainly been a practice. I did some of the first dialyses around. I remember starting the first dialysis at VA Lakeside, or research, I've forgotten what, which or not. It was before hemodialysis even was around, and I did the first peritoneal dialysis. In those days, there were no ICUs, so you did mm. it in the private room. Mm. Wow. <laughs> and, 
patient survived. He did well. He, he opened up his kidneys from his acute kidney failure. But oh. nonetheless, these were exciting times to grow up, as they are now. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the improvements in care. Two of the other things, by the way, that we didn't mention, it was through a multi-center VA study that was first proved treating hypertension, high blood pressure, really prevented heart failure, coronary artery disease, strokes, and increased longevity. And that study was done nationally only at the VA by VA investigators using a triple drug pill. Mm -hmm. But the first time that anybody proved that treating high blood pressure was beneficial. The other one, of course, was the VA was the developed the first electronic medical record, mm-hmm. right? And did not include billing, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> which the private service suffers from tremendously because billing calls the shots. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the VA, it was patient care that called the shots. Yeah. And that's a tremendous difference that I still to this day feel wonderful about that the VA was able to do this for patient care. There was nothing driving that other than patient care that I know of. And I think that's wonderful. Kind of looking at all, all of these in context, do you think these these achievements and advancements could have been made without partnering with academic institutions? Would have been difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think academic institutions gave the VA expertise which it may it may have still had by itself, mm-hmm. but didn't have to to the degree that it had in terms of numbers and perhaps even in terms of excellence. So that I can't say. I do think that the the symbiotic relationship between the two institutions, one gaining tremendously from expertise in patient care and in research and the other gaining tremendously by being able to expand its faculty because salaries were paid for by the VA, by being able to provide increased training for medical students and house officers, interns, residents, fellows, and by providing research funding. The VA provides extra research funding for, uh, for the medical school faculties who are based there. Being a professor at Northwestern, did the students you saw training with the VA change since you were a student? I think they're much brighter now. I'm not sure I could get into medical school these days. Oh, really? <laughs> well, I, I just barely made it. And then I suddenly turned on the summer before and started reading Grey's Anatomy before I started medical school. Mm. <laughs> but but uh, I just, and medicine just turned me right on. I, I became a very good medical student. Interesting, uh, but I was not, I was just a middling college student. These kids, I was on the on the admissions committee at Northwestern Medical School for five years, and these kids are extraordinarily bright. I had to work right. the heck to get a girl I had known for years who was a Woodrow Wilson Scholar at Princeton, but she only had a three point four GPA at Princeton. Is that considered low? <laughs> Does that not cut it? (laughs) Our GPAs were 3.6 and 3.7 at at a minimum. And I had to really pull, put a little influence on, shall I say. Mm -hmm. She's now an associate professor of pediatric cardiology at Johns Hopkins. So I don't think I put my my faith in her appropriately. Right, right. Younger brother is a neurologist on the faculty at Northwestern now. Mm -hmm. Neurologist, brains, not kidney. 
<laughs> As we've learned. Yes. <laughs> I just was going to kind of go back and you were talking a little bit earlier about the effects you saw in veterans health because of substance abuse and things that they had experienced during the war. And in a previous call we had with you, you said that the first veteran you saw was from the Spanish-American War. That's correct. Can you tell us overall what you've sort of seen in the different needs of, of veterans health care as history has progressed? The Spanish-American War didn't last very long, thank God. And nonetheless, it, the, the number of veterans far exceeded the number of people who had, had the kind of trauma that World War I and World War II veterans had. So that they did not suffer from that much substance abuse. They had the usual diseases that aging causes. Interestingly, my wife, who was a psychiatric research technician when we met, and uh, she interviewed a whole bunch of Spanish-American war veterans for the psychological studies that they were doing on aging mm -hmm. and on reflexes and things of that sort. So we both saw Spanish-American war veterans. Right. Wow. And I think what we saw and may still be seeing because of the trauma that happened in Afghanistan and the snipers and everything else in Afghanistan and, and Iraq, Iraq were terribly traumatic. Uh, I can understand why they, why these things have happened, why, why the substance abuse has happened. And I think the public should not look upon seeing people sleeping on the streets as just bums. Every bum has a real story. Yeah. And they're not bums. They're human beings who have suffered tremendous trauma. I once had a, a funny experience with my wife. We were walking through a park together, and my wife said, look at, the, look at that lady sleeping there with all of her worldly possessions, and she's sleeping on a park bench. And the lady picked up her head, and she immediately recognized me, and I recognized her. And she yelled, hi, Doc, how are you? And she was a schizophrenic patient of mine, a dialysis patient. Wow. <laughs> she was my patient, and she would not stay in a house. She would not stay in a home. The reason why she was on the street was because she went off her meds all the time. She wouldn't stay any place, and she liked living on the street. Mm -hmm. She would not stay any place, even on her meds. And wow. my wife said, you know that lady? I said, yeah, she's my patient. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> all right, Dr. Lover, we're going to pause you just for a moment right there and then bring in Andrea. Andrea, you you there? I'm here. All right, Andrea. So you are with the, the Jesse Brown uh, VA Medical Center. Um, Correct. Since Northwestern was the first school to affiliate with the VA hospitals 75 years ago, can you kind of tell us what you're seeing today and what kind of excites you about the future of academic affiliations with VA hospitals? Absolutely. I'm happy to. And thank you for having me here today. Like you said, I'm at the Jesse Brown VA. We partner with both Northwestern University and University of Illinois. And they were, you know, like you said, they were the first to, to have residents at all. So there is that nice historical aspect to my job. And I actually trained at one of the institutions and worked at the other. As far as what I think is exciting about the VA, I'd say the first is probably the Choice Act that came out in 2014, signed by President Obama. And the main goal of that act was to increase access to care for veterans. There were instances where veterans could not get to a medical center. They lived in a rural area or they lived in right. an area that didn't have a, a certain specialty. And then some veterans might've lived in areas, but, but they just, there weren't enough appointments. And right. so what we realized is that we needed more physicians. So in order to do that, OAA was tasked with basically placing 1500 new resident positions in these 
areas that were needed. So places that didn't have any trainees at all, rural areas. And I think the other aspect of this, they tend to live within a hundred miles of where they trained. So the thought here is that if you can, if you can create programs in rural areas where there is a need to have you know, primary care doctors, mental health physicians to help our veterans, that they're more likely to actually accept jobs there and work at VAs. I think this was an amazing program. They, I think that they just successfully placed their last resident within the last year or two. Mm-hmm. And I do, I do think that it really has expanded healthcare in regions where it's needed. And can you talk about how the pandemic has shaped and or influenced medical training? Oh, Okay. Well, yeah, no, that's been, it's been huge. We've had to pivot in a lot of different ways to accommodate the training programs. So some of the things that I've seen, one is telemedicine. I mean, we were already a leader in telehealth, the VA, we probably did more telehealth than anyone. And so that has only expanded with the pandemic. And so, you know, some of the things that we've had to some hurdles, one of them was, you know, how do we have trainees participate in telehealth? across state lines. So that was something that OAA recently had to, you know, modify the policy, which sounds easy, but you know, it's, it's a big bureaucracy. So they had to work really hard to make sure that a license in one state could be carried over to another state to care for patients in Indiana, which is not that Mm -hmm. far away, but Mm -hmm. still we couldn't have our trainees involved in telehealth across state lines. So that has happened. We now have that ability to do that. That's fascinating because that's not something you would you would think about until you realize that there are these states do operate independently and they do have their own ways of practice and you can't just cross the line except the internet allows us to do that seamlessly. That's very interesting. It sure does. No, it sure does. And so, you know, we already had you already had the ability to practice in a VA with a license really from any state. But to right. go across state lines, that was a separate set of rules, laws, whatever policies Mm -hmm. that needed to be modified. So that's been kind of interesting. One of the other things that I've noticed is with not so much with graduate medical education, but when you talk about nursing and medical students, we had to find really creative ways to teach these trainees offsite, right? We're social Mm -hmm. distancing. We needed the residents there. They had to be there. They were providing the direct care, but the medical students didn't necessarily need to be physically there they, but they needed to learn. They still had to complete medical school. So I know there've been a lot of time spent providing lectures and providing virtual clinical experiences for these trainees Mm -hmm. to allow them to keep up during this kind of stressful process. Another scenario is residents who work in a clinic that is now shut down. How can these trainees now be included and also help out? I mean, there was this sense that everyone wanted to chip in and help care for these patients in COVID units because, you know, they couldn't have family members visit. They were very sick patients and it was a high stress level. So we had some of our PM&R residents, our rehab residents serve as kind of liaisons to the family because the families couldn't visit. So they were part of the team. Mm -hmm. They had to know the patient very well. They had to know the medical issues, but, and then they had, they were the ones that would communicate with the families when the patients weren't on the COVID unit or in the ICU. Wow. Which is extremely important. It was, oh my gosh, it was, you know, these, these families, everyone's been going through so much and to just not be able to walk into a hospital and see your loved one who's sick is extremely stressful. And so it was nice that these, these residents 
were willing to chip in and, you know, do something that maybe wasn't part of their training mm-hmm. curriculum, but they were happy to do it just to help out and support the other the ICU fellows who were taking care of the patients in the ICU. Yeah. It just takes patient care to a whole nother level and a whole new. Whole it new did. Thing. It did. It's, it's unprecedented what we're going through right now. It also points out the basic altruism that most medical students have before they enter medical school, but that they maintain it. Some lose it later on in their careers, but most physicians still remain somewhat altruistic. Sorry, I was just putting it in a plug from medical people. No, 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 you're absolutely right. Could you tell us, Andrea, or or you too, Murray, what's next? What can we see in the future of this academic affiliations? I guess I can, I can try to predict. I do think that the relationships are only going to become stronger over time. The, the VA really does offer a training environment that's a little bit different than what you can get at academic, at many academic medical centers in the sense that the, the trainees at the VA are allowed to develop relationships with patients in a way that they can't when they're rotating through different specialists clinic. So if, if I have a patient, if I see a patient in my clinic with a resident at Northwestern, which, you know, I work there a couple afternoons a week, they're my patients. They know they're there to see me. They're happy to have a resident there, but the resident doesn't really get to have the time to sit and get to know the patient. Mm-hmm. Whereas at the VA, even though they're maybe only there for, you know, a, a su- several months as an ophthalmologist, these, these are their patients. They got to do surgery on them they get to talk to them about the risks and benefits of surgery in a way that I would want to do myself. So I wouldn't have the resident do that for my own patient. Right. Um, they get to follow them through their post-op period and, and manage them and develop that relationship with their family. So, and mm. I do think that the medical centers recognize this, the residents certainly appreciate it. So I think that it's such a valuable experience that they're only going to continue to partner with us to train their residents going forward. Murray, do you have any predictions? Well, I, I, I agree. I think it will remain strong and may be strengthened, although I'm not quite sure how it's possible to strengthen something that's already very strong. But the relationship has always been very good. Uh, when I was a health officer, I started following patients in a, in a weekly clinic of my own when I was halfway through my internship. But I, I was able to follow my patients till the end of my training for the next two and a half years. I followed the same patients as a fellow every twice a week. I, I had outpatients as a fellow. Uh, so that I was able to really establish longitudinal relationships with my patients. It's a wonderful experience to be able to establish a personal relationship with patients. Nonetheless, it, longitudinal relationships, Andrea, I agree with you completely, uh, are, are marvelous things to have in, in, as a physician. Dr. Levin, could you have ever foreseen some of these things when you were going through your residency? Uh, no. <laughs> well, one never knows. One, uh, one, one of the great benefits of both clinical and basic science research is to really see what basic science and its clinical applications have done for us. I mean, just look at the RNA virus we have now. I worked on messenger RNA and look at how long it has taken for practical applications. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And people have to understand, the public has to be made aware that research does not have immediate practical applications. 
and that one cannot just fund practical stuff, one has to fund both. The public has to be aware that basic research is extraordinarily important as well as practical research and practical application at the bedside. One follows the other. They don't come, as we used to say in Boston Latin School, sui generis. The ideas hatch from somebody's head and they become basic research and then the practical applications at the bedside follow. Yeah. Yep. That's yep. exactly the point I'm making. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. All right. I think we're going to have to end it there. But Dr. Murray Levin, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today and, and telling us your stories. This is fun. Next week, same time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Next episode. And uh, Andrea Birnbaum, thank you so much for taking the time out from, from your schedule to give us a look at what's happening today and to preview into the next 75 years of academic affiliations. My pleasure. There's a lot of excitement in what's ahead. And that's our show, everyone. Katie, what do we have in store next week? On next week's episode, we're going to be talking a little bit about how the Veterans Health Administration has been responding to the COVID-19 pandemic. So that's interesting because, you know, when I think of the VA, I, I don't normally think about innovating or, or things like that. You just, I just picture a hospital and that's where people go who used to serve in the military. So we're talking about not only in this podcast, how from a historical perspective, the VA has, has met challenges and innovated medicine as we know it, but we're even doing that right now during this pandemic. And so if you want to find out what we're doing and, and how we're meeting that challenge, we're going to tune in next week. I'm excited. See you next week.